Uh, my name is Dave Miller, and uh, if you are new, um, I am not the person who normally preaches at GCF. Usually Tyler Voline, our college pastor, is the preacher, but um, I guess he wanted a night off tonight, so here I am. I've been a part of uh, Sovereign Hope Church for about five years now, and so um, I'm excited to share God's Word with you tonight. Imagine that you have just arrived at a friend's house. Picture five or ten of your good friends there. All right, they've got great food cooking. You can inhale and, and just smell the aroma. Your favorite music is playing. One of your very good friends comes up to you and says, It's so good to see you. How are you? And you reply, I, I, You know, I'm, I'm all right. I've, I've been doing some thinking. Your friend says, well, well, tell me what's on your mind. What, 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 how, what's on your mind? And you say, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about death lately. You could really just suck the air right out of the room, couldn't you, by starting out saying something like that. I mean, death could be a conversation starter. It's, it's, it's something that... Uh, lies in the future for all of us, something everybody has a few thoughts about, and yet it's something we so seldom talk about. In the translation of the Bible that I used to prepare, the English Standard Version, there is some variation of the word die or death five times in just 11 verses. And I, I, I feel like that word count, as I read this text, I think that word count actually understates the extent to which the reality of death really hangs over this passage. And yet, we will find tonight, we will find that this is not a message of despair. Even though we see this recurring theme of death, it's not a message of despair. And that is because one death that receives a lot of attention in these verses is not my eventual death, it's not your eventual death. It's the death of Jesus Christ. And strangely enough, it is in this death, the death of Christ, that we as Christians find our source for life. I'd ask you to join me in prayer now. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your spirit, Father, speak to us by those means tonight. We thank you. Um, we thank you for the power inherent in your word and your spirit and your presence. And Father, I ask tonight that you would just, just take any distractions off of our minds. Distractions of schoolwork, distractions in our social lives, family lives. Lord, just for, for 30, 40 minutes tonight... Let those just disappear. Let us just focus on God's word and focus on the person of Jesus Christ, on his death and his resurrection. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we are in Romans chapter 5. We're in the first part of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I'll let you know right off the bat, we're going to jump around a little bit in this passage. We will be starting with verses 1 and 2. That much is not surprising. But then from verse 2, we're going to jump all the way to verse 9. The reason we're going to make that jump, I can sum, up, sum it up in one word. That word is justified. 
justified. We have to understand what Paul means by the word justified in order to understand this passage. Justified is a word we hear from time to time. It's not a word we use a whole lot in our day-to-day conversation. So we want to make sure everybody's clear on what Paul is talking about. The word justified or the concept of justification is the key to unlocking the meaning in this entire passage of Scripture. Justification is a legal term. It comes from the world of law. It's related, very closely related to the word justice. I looked it up on the internet. I googled the word uh, justified. Two definitions came up and they both help us out. The first one, justified, having done for or marked for a good or legitimate reason. Marked for a good or legitimate reason. Here's the second definition. This one included a note. It said theology. So we know this one will be important to us. Um, It says declared or made righteous in the sight of God. So that's the heart of what we're going to be talking about. What it is to be declared, to be made righteous in the sight of God. And we're also going to see, we're going to see how it is that God declares a sinful person to be righteous. And we're going to see furthermore that when you become justified, it is for a good and legitimate reason. So both of those definitions are useful. We'll keep them in mind. We're also going to see how the reality of justification has to do with the stark reality of death that I was talking about, how it has to do with our death that we eventually face, and it has to do with the death of Christ, and has to do how has to do with how those come together and help us to understand justification. So Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to continue on to the second verse, but keep that phrase in mind, justified by faith. Tyler was really talking about that if you happened to be here last week, justified by faith. If you weren't here, I'll do my best to bring you up to speed. But moving on now, here's verse two. Through him, that is through Jesus Christ, we have obtained, excuse me, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have so much meaning in just those two verses. I wish I could talk about them for hours. I won't, don't worry. But uh, we have so much already. Justified by faith. We are justified by faith. And what happens? We have peace with God. All right, that's a good thing. So justification, whatever this is, as we come to understand it, we know it brings peace with God. All right, verse two, we have access by faith into grace. And then what happens? Rejoicing. All right, so this is stuff everybody wants. Peace with God. We all want that, right? A life filled with joy, a life of rejoicing. Tell me more about this. Now let's jump to verse nine. Romans five, verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by by him From the wrath of God. It says, We have now been justified by his blood. Now, this verse 9, this is tinged with a warning. It has a little bit different feel from what we heard in verses 1 and 2. 
Verse 9 says we need to be saved from the wrath of God. We need to be justified so that we will not have to endure the wrath of God. It's very diff- somewhat different in tone from what we just heard. Remember that? Peace with God. Sign me up. A life filled with rejoicing. I want that. Wrath of God. Oh, I don't, I don't know how I, that's kind of scary. I don't know how I feel about this, this angry, wrathful God. And what we have to understand is he is the same God. Verse 9 is just urging us to look at the situation, to turn it around and look at it from a different angle. You want peace with God? You want to find joy in the Lord? You have to be saved from his wrath. God is wrathful towards our sin. But how can we? How can we be at peace with this God? How could a sinner like you or me enjoy the presence of a perfect and righteous God? How could we be justified to stand before him? Here's an example to get your mind thinking about this. Imagine you get invited to a social event for your department. All right, somebody tells you when it is. They say, show up Thursday night, 7 p.m., third floor of the UC in the ballroom. So you get ready to go. Now you've noticed you're already skipping GCF, so you're already sinning. You know this is not going to end well. But you're, but you're looking forward to it. You're looking forward to it. Hopefully you like the people in your department and your major. If you don't, pretend that you do. You get to the UC, you go upstairs, you open the door to the ballroom. Everybody's there, your fellow students, your professors, your advisor, a bunch of university executives. All of them are in formal attire. Every single person there except for you. The men are in tuxedos. The women are in evening gowns. You are standing there in the clothes you're wearing right now. And everyone is staring right at you. Now, arriving at a formal event in your regular clothes would be very uncomfortable. No question about it. But arriving in the presence of a holy God clothed in your sin would be Utterly unbearable. Absolutely unbearable. And again, the end of verse 9 tells us our God is a wrathful God. And this is the part of the Bible's teaching that, that sometimes these, these, these rough edges get sanded off in modern, teaches, modern teaching. Sometimes we kind of have a way of leaving this aside. But the Almighty God, the Word says, is fiercely angry about our sin. Do you remember the last time that you looked at something on the internet that you never would have looked at if there had been someone else in the room? That was sin. Do you remember the last time you copied the answers to a homework assignment or you cheated with somebody else's answers on a test? You said, everybody does it once in a while. It's no big deal. You're deceiving someone. You've sinned. Think about something as common as anger. Think about when somebody wrongs you. Somebody wrongs you, but you just let your blood boil for a while, right? It feels so good to be angry at that person under those circumstances, doesn't it? Well, the Bible calls that sin as well. Gossip, so common, so easy to get wrapped up in, in some circumstances, so difficult to avoid, and yet it's sinful. Again, according to God's word. Every one of us in this room is a sinner. And the Bible says that because of that, every one of us deserves God's wrath. 
And if you die and you are still clothed in your sin, you will experience God's wrath without end. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 and 42, Jesus talks about hell. Jesus says, the Son of Man will send his angels. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus uses to refer to himself. So Jesus says he, Jesus, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus goes on, verse 43, listen to this. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus believes in hell. He wants all people to understand that hell is real. And he wants you to avoid it. He so badly wants you to avoid it. He wants you to avoid it because hell is a place of unimaginable suffering. And he wants you to avoid it because the alternative to eternity in hell is eternity with Jesus. Eternity with Jesus himself. And it is justification, it is through justification that a sinner like you or like me can be assured of this eternity with Jesus. You can be declared righteous. You can be justified here and now and in this life. When that happens, your standing before God is completely, utterly transformed. Just like that, in a moment, you move from condemned to justified. From condemned to righteous. It is by faith. It is because you let go of trying to trust in your own goodness you give that up and you admit your sin and you, you admit your need for Jesus. Because when Jesus was put on the cross, he received a nail for all of your lies. He received a nail for your greed. He received a nail for your lust. He wore a crown of thorns for your pride and for your selfishness. See, your sin has received punishment. It has been Excuse me, your sin has been punished already. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, received it upon his own body. Believe in the Son of God and be justified. Be forgiven. Be clean. Be justified now so that you can shine like the sun in eternity. I want to return to our text now. I want, you to, I want to read the second part of it. These are verses 6 through verse, verse six through verse 11. And as I read it, I want you to reflect on the words. And I, as, you, as you do, I want you really to think about these two alternatives that lie before us. On one hand, justification, reconciliation, rejoicing, and Jesus. On the other hand, unrighteousness, rebellion, condemnation, hell. Here's verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath 
of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Do you see? The one who is strong has died for the weak. The one who is righteous has died for the unrighteous. We who deserve wrath have instead received love. We who lived as enemies of God may now know reconciliation. And knowing reconciliation, we rejoice. Now we are going to move along here soon. I want to talk about what this news means for our lives. I want to talk about what it means to live as a person who is justified. But before we move on, I want to leave you with a point. Now, I said that justification is a legal concept, all right? God actually uses our human understanding of law and the courts and justice. He uses that to help us grasp and understand the principles that undergird our salvation, all right? God wants us to understand the logic of justification. He wants us to think it through. But don't let this formula obscure just how outrageous this message is. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was, Tyler talked about the scandal of the gospel message. This is scandalous. This is, this is absurd to the world that is not following Christ. Here's a scandalous example for you to consider. You pick up the Missoulian tomorrow. I know nobody reads a newspaper anymore, but imagine you pick up the Missoulian tomorrow and you read about a person who has been convicted of multiple murders, all right? This murderer comes before the judge for sentencing and the judge hands down the death penalty. And then, out of the blue, a man who has been sitting there listening to the proceedings steps forward, stands between the judge and the condemned and says, I will receive the death penalty. I'm an innocent man. I've never given anyone a black eye, let alone committed murder. But I will take the death penalty. Let this murderer go free. And the judge says, all right. It's as if you read something like that in the paper, you would be outraged. You would think it was bizarre. You'd think it was made up. You'd think it was fictional. Yet that is an illustration of the gospel message. It's an imperfect illustration, but it, it starts to kind of get it how wild this is that God has condemned his son and through that given us the opportunity to receive forgiveness and eternal freedom. So don't lose sight of the scandal of the gospel. I want to read verses 6 through 8 again. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for ungodly sinners. The next time you share this news with a friend who's not a Christian, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if they're shocked. We, some of us who attend church week in, week out, this starts to sound very familiar, very familiar. This is really 
wild sounding, especially to someone who hasn't, doesn't believe or someone who has not thought it through very thoroughly. All right, so we are about to turn a corner here. I want to talk about how a person changes once justified. But before I do, I do want to ask you one simple question, and you might see it coming. Are you justified? Are you justified? Ask the Lord the simple question. Am I justified? In other words, am I saved? Am I truly a Christian? Just like this, the first verse of our passage tells us, a Christian is justified by faith. By believing in what Jesus did, you are justified. But ask yourself, even if you've been coming to church for many years, are you still trying to find your justification in all of your hard work? in your academic achievements? Are you trying to find it in your care for your family members and your friends? Are you trying to find it in your community service? Are you trying to find it in the fact that you give up your Thursday nights and your Sunday mornings to hear gospel preaching? Turn to Jesus. If you know in the bottom of your heart that you are justified by faith, thank Jesus for that. If you know it in the bottom of your heart, thank him. But if you are not sure, ask him right now. Ask him right now. And when we're done tonight, I would love to pray with you. I know Tyler would love to pray with you. Jordan would love to pray with you. The person next to you would probably be honored to pray with you and for you. The prayer won't justify you, but the one we pray to, Jesus Christ, is the justifier. So now with that on our minds, we are ready to talk about the journey that lies ahead. We are ready to talk about the journey of the justified. The journey of the Christian person. Verse two, once again, through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Another important note on a word here. I won't take as long as I did with justification, but the meaning of hope in this passage is very different from the way we use hope day to day. It's very different because often we use hope to imply wishful thinking, right? I hope I win the lottery. Don't play the lottery, by the way. Don't, don't throw your hard-earned money away. But you recognize we use the word this way. I hope I get to visit North Dakota someday. It's a very strange, outlandish dream of mine. Uh, Maybe, maybe you express optimism with hope, right? I hope I get an A on the test. So it's more than wishful thinking. You've worked hard. You've prepared. But you're not assured of that A, right? I hope I get the A. It's not an assurance. And yet the hope we find in verse 2, the hope of the glory of God, this is different. This is assurance, all right? This is a certain assurance, which is probably a redundant expression, but we have an assurance in this hope that God is glorious. We have an assurance that the person justified by faith in Jesus will one day enjoy God's glory to the fullest. And it's because of this assurance that we as the justified can stand and rejoice in the grace of God. We can even rejoice in tough times, all right? The following verses will tell us that we can rejoice in suffering even. Verses three through five. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do we rejoice in our sufferings? How do we do this? This is that tough spot that we come to as Christians. We have to deal with this. We have to think about this. And I think for most of us, we have to admit we are not very good at this. We are not very good at this. We are not very good at rejoicing when we are suffering. We are not inclined often to admit that suffering is a part of God's good plan for us. We are all guilty of praying for the stuff that we want and begging God at times. Please don't give us the stuff we don't want, right? I know that I'm guilty of this. I can tell you about one example. I work a couple of different jobs. Um, and Friday nights, I work uh, a takeout department at a very, very busy restaurant. And some nights, that job just gets crazy, okay? And when I drive to work, probably not every week, but most weeks I do for part of the drive, I find myself praying. But I will admit to you, it is not a very righteous prayer. It usually goes something like this. Lord, please can things just go smoothly tonight. Please can things just go the way they are supposed to, Lord, please. Because nights that go smoothly, it, it's kind of a fun job in a very weird way. But nights that things start to go wrong, they just pile one atop the other. I'll have five orders coming up at once that I'm supposed to put together in different bags. The next thing to know, I've got, the next thing you know, I get a couple items mixed up. The kitchen mixes something up there as a dish that was supposed to be gluten-free, but it's not. The phone is ringing. Somebody answering the phone has, has overcharged somebody. I have to run to the computer and fix it. But then the person on the phone, they want me to give them $85 worth of, worth of food for free because a sweet and sour sauce is spilled all over their food. The whole thing just starts to unravel. It gets really overwhelming sometimes. And I have a very difficult time rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of that. It, it occurs to me at times, the Lord reminds me, sometimes at the most stressful times, I'll think, God has put me here for a reason. I'm supposed to find satisfaction in God in the midst of this. But it's so difficult, Right? Hopefully, you have a more peaceful vocation than I do. Hopefully, I really hope that you do. And yet, don't we all do this sometimes? Don't we all struggle to rejoice in our sufferings? Instead, don't we pray, Lord, fix this. When things go wrong, Lord, you're almighty. You can fix this. A few years ago, I heard a Christian say, I could probably count on one hand, the number of times I have prayed a prayer that wasn't selfish at its core. Lord, I want this. Lord, please, none of that. Right? We pray like this an awful lot of the time. The person who said that wasn't a new Christian at the time. And sadly, I don't think he was all that unusual, except perhaps for his honesty and his openness. So again, right here in God's word, we find it very clear that as Christians, we are going to get some of the things that we do not want. Keep in mind, if we are justified, we already have the greatest thing that any of us could ever want 
Remember, we have the assurance of eternity with Jesus Christ. We have the presence of Jesus, not merely with us, but within us, poured into our hearts by the Spirit of God. And yet some days, some days it's tough, isn't it? Some days this life is harder than it seems like it ought to be. Even, even here in Missoula, a nice town in the United States of America, the most prosperous country in the world, it still gets really tough sometimes. We can't avoid this. There are probably 30 or 40 people in this room. And if every one of you could stand up here and give a five-minute summary of your life, we would see that people have experienced very different amounts of suffering in this room. It's not fair, right? There are people in this room who have experienced a lot of suffering, and there are others who have, in comparison to others, had it, had it pretty good. But we would see, if everyone came up here and was transparent, we would see that everybody has endured some really tough stretches, right? And I tell you, it is more than likely that it's going to get tougher for every one of us here. It really is. So we are going to have to learn to rejoice in our sufferings. I'll give you a couple of reasons why we as Christians can rejoice in our sufferings. There are a, there are a lot of reasons. This is a deep, deep uh, theological issue, and we could go on and on, but I'll give you a couple of reasons here. One reason is because the suffering is temporary. Paul, as he often does, puts it better than anybody else. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Beautiful verse Paul wrote in this second letter to the Corinthian church. He writes, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When I'm doing that restaurant job I mentioned, and I've got one call on hold from an angry customer, another call coming in, I've got food to bag up, there's a salad I've noticed sitting there that the delivery driver was supposed to take but didn't. I, I think it's tough, but really it's not. It's really not ever that big of a deal. Now, when Paul talks about suffering, Paul knows suffering. Paul was stoned to the point that he collapsed and was left for dead. Paul knows suffering, and yet even Paul says when we keep things in the right perspective, when we stay focused on eternity with Jesus, even if you're on the receiving end of brutal violence, even that can be seen as a light and temporary affliction. It's temporary. That's one reason we can keep rejoicing. Whatever suffering we face, if we are justified, we can rejoice because we know that one day death will be no more. There will no longer be mourning, no more crying, no more pain. These former things will pass away. We will then experience complete joy with the Almighty God. Another reason we can rejoice, and I touched on this, we have God with us right now. We have God with us, present in our hearts through the Spirit right now. Our joy may be partial now, but we have the knowledge that one day it will be complete, and even though it is not now complete, God is with us and in us through thick and through thin. A third reason 
we can rejoice in our suffering is because our suffering enables us to become more like Jesus. All right? It enables, enables us to become more like Jesus. Again, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is very helpful to think about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, first part of verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus, into the image of the Lord, one degree at a time, one degree at a time. The process is slow. The process is painful. If we are to become like Jesus, the suffering servant, we too must suffer. Jesus went 40 days in the desert without food and without water. He endured taunts. He endured threats. He endured insults. Ultimately, as we know, he was tortured to death. He died on a cross. Suffering humbles us. Humility is not always valued in the world that we live in. It's kind of hit and miss, but it is a virtue. It's a pleasing quality in the eyes of God as we repent of our pride, as we shed this pride and, and further embrace the humility that is found in Christ. We are more fully embracing our identity as servants. Servants of God, servants of our brothers and sisters in Christ, servants ultimately of all we come in contact with. So when we suffer, we learn to endure faithfully. For most of us in this room, this Christian journey is likely to go on for quite some time. So you will get a lot of practice at learning to suffer. You will have a lot of opportunities to repent of sin and to become more like Christ. Let's go on uh, with these verses now. Endurance, our scripture says, as we endure in this suffering, this produces character. And godly character is what we are talking about here. We're back looking at verses 3 through 5 now. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Endurance produces character. In Galatians, Paul writes of the qualities that the Spirit will cultivate, cultivate in the Christian person who endures. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's beneficial for us to endure because by enduring, these qualities develop in us. And as we continue through this process that Paul is describing here, character produces hope. Now this is interesting. He says character produces hope but the tricky thing is I already said that when we talk about hope in this scripture, hope is, an, hope is an assurance. It is a sure thing. So how is it that we can produce more of something we already find fully in God, in Christ? What I think is happening here is as our character becomes more Christ-like, we begin to perceive more and more of the beauty of the hope that is found in God. The hope is objective. God is our hope. He exists as hope, whether or not a person believes in him. If you believe in him, he becomes your hope. And yet as we grow in Christ, we perceive more of God. We perceive more of this hope. And we rejoice once again. 
Our trust in Jesus grows and grows as this process continues. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This process is possible because we are justified in the sight of God. God has poured himself, that is to say his spirit, into our hearts and the progression has now come full circle. By faith we stand in grace and we rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings This produces endurance, which in turn produces character, which in turn reveals more to us of the hope we have in God. And hope does not put us to shame because God's spirit has already been poured into the justified heart. He has given it a grace by faith. So beginning with faith, we follow all the way through Paul's reasoning, through this progression of these different qualities we desire as Christians, and we get to the end, we find We're back at the starting point. We receive the Spirit of God. By faith, we already have the very thing that starts this astonishing process of transformation. And yet at the end of it, we discover once again, we already have all that we need in Jesus. I want to tell you just very briefly before we close, this has been on my mind as I've been preparing to speak to all of you. I did not become a Christian until after I had finished college. And I was listening to Tyler's preaching a couple weeks ago. He was talking about how we often um, desire, we often desire to be conformists or nonconformists. Maybe you remember that. My freshman year, I was trying really hard to be both. I really wanted to be a nonconformist. I really wanted this alternative, partying, exciting lifestyle. But I really wanted to achieve, too. I really wanted to be top-notch student, just, just firing on all cylinders. And this crazy pursuit, you'll notice I wasn't pursuing Christ. He wasn't in the picture. But this crazy pursuit of two kind of polar opposites, it led me to this, this crash at the end of my freshman year. And I think... I don't know how to describe it exactly. The term nervous breakdown gets thrown around a lot. I think that's accurate. I just fell apart. And when that happened, I actually attended church for a few weeks. The church that I went to, looking back now, knowing what I now know, it wasn't a church with a real clear gospel proclamation, but it was a place with a relatively healthy culture, a lot healthier than the culture I had chosen for much of my freshman year. There was opportunity to learn about Jesus. And when I did finally get saved in my mid-twenties, I thought back about that again and again and again for weeks. I thought, I wonder what would have happened if I had just stuck around. And it's kind of a crazy thing to say because I do believe that God has pre-planned the moment, the time that each of us comes to know him. But I could not help but think back. And even justified now today, as I look forward to eternity with Jesus, I can tell you, justification cleanses us of all sin. You are found righteous in the sight of God. It doesn't clear up all the problems you have caused by years and years of sinning. It doesn't immediately repair all the relationships with friends and family. And so I'm so glad, it's so 
moving to me to see so many young people gather here to hear the gospel week after week. And, and please, I know, I know that some of you I know are, str- relatively speaking, strong in the Lord, you know, and you've been, you, perhaps you accepted Christ at a very young age. But I know whether or not that's true for you, I know that you're in a place where you are feeling all these different pulls right now. And please keep coming back to hear the gospel. I hope you're ready to accept and embrace Jesus and follow him tonight for the rest of your life. But wherever you're at, please keep coming back. Please keep holding on to these people who love Christ. Please do that. It will will make all the difference for you, I promise you. Hold on to the Jesus who shed his blood for our sins. Hold on to the Jesus who rose from the grave on the third day. The Jesus who is alive in heaven today with his Father and alive in the hearts of everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for bringing these people together tonight to hear your gospel, Father. And I pray that I pray that if they forget about everything that I said here tonight, I pray that they will remember the power of your word. And I pray they will remember that there are people around them who care about them, who love Jesus. Father, may we know that we are embraced by people who love Jesus. May we know that each day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.